kind of thinking rhymes or like in rhythm so that's what I was using and then um, when I had the antidepressants I noticed I, I noticed the poetry changing. I, w I went to that play in the chapel and I will never ever forget it. It was, how should I say it, I saw it transforming people. It was not just the state of physical, mental, emotional, social well-being, but also enabling a person to fulfill their creative potential. Welcome to Reclaiming Our Heritage, a mental health foundation podcast inspired by its two-year oral history project supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project's aim is to record and preserve the spoken testimonies of the mental health community between the 1950s and the early 2000s. The full interviews by these contributors and others are available in the Reclaiming Our Heritage archive on the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival website. My name is Helena Rafai and in each episode I will explore themes and these will be further discussed by a professional guest. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the impact of art on mental health and hearing from different voices on this theme from the Reclaiming Our Heritage Archive. We'll also be exploring themes of creativity and the arts, because the thing that ties all these voices together is their involvement in mental health and the arts. Our expert on this episode is Andrea Spink. Hi, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Good to meet you. Good to meet you too, and I really appreciate you being here. So first of all, can you just introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about your background? Uh, yeah, my name is Andrea Spink, and I'm an art psychotherapist. Um, I started off, I suppose when I was young, really being interested in art. It was a big part of my life, and it was what I was drawn to. It was kind of a way of me kind of, I suppose, working things out, um, expressing things. I also used to write a lot. Um, and then that just kind of um, landed me in kind of arts in the community. And I ended up working in kind of art centres and schools with children and then in colleges and day centres with adults with complex needs and learning and physical disabilities. And then training to be in art therapy about 20 years ago. Um, and since then, I've worked in adults, uh, community health. Great. So it's, it's, it's quite a varied um, landscape that you've covered. And it's really nice to hear about the different types of people that you've worked with as well. So I guess that it would be a great point now just to explore some of the archived vo voices that we have and talk about the theme a bit further. We're going to start off with Donna. And Donna was born in 1975 and grew up in Blantyre and um, currently works as a mental health nurse. And the clip that we're about to hear just goes into great detail about Donna's background also. My own personal experience of using the arts in relation to mental health is um, that I had uh, my second child in 2000 and 
sick. Um, and I had, I think I had depression whilst I was pregnant because I had a really hard pregnancy um, and I ended up in hospital before I had the baby. So it wasn't a great experience anyway. And I think I was quite low then. Um, and then after the birth, it was a really traumatic birth. I, I, um, I had a emergency cesarean section and I'd had one before with my uh, first daughter and I was trying to avoid it and wasn't able to, you know, it happened again kind of thing. Um, and then after that, I was physically very unwell. Um, I had a infected blood clot because of the surgery um, and it was kind of on my lung. It was hard to breathe and I just had lots of kind of physical health issues. Probably really high risk for postnatal depression. Um, and, uh, you know, that was kind of identified by my health visitor about maybe eight weeks or something like that um, because she knew that, that, you know, there was something not right. This was, um, I think I was quite lucky. It was previously the health visitor had been my school nurse when I was at primary school. Um, so she knew me and my family and what have you, and she knew that I wasn't quite right. I was just going through the motions. Um, you know, I just had a baby. I had a wee toddler who was, you know, delightful. And I was just really so flat. I wasn't, I never recognised it as postnatal depression or even the baby blues. Because I wasn't thinking straight and because I wasn't crying, I wasn't sitting crying all day. Uh, you know, that's what I thought depression was, that you were, you know, you were thinking hopeless things and, um, you know, crying all day and, you know, anything made you cry kind of thing. I wasn't, I was just, I was just nothing. Um, and I was doing the, you know, I was being, I was being a good mum as in I was taking care of their physical needs and I was there to, you know, to help them and manage them, but I wasn't feeling anything just blank it was horrible um so that's you know that was the start of that journey and I used um I found myself you know I was offered support from it through the GP for talking therapy and was like absolutely not you know why would I want to speak to a stranger blah 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 and I didn't know what it was that was wrong I didn't, didn't even know what I would say um and I had been offered antidepressants as well and I was horrified at antidepressants so I tried to find my, muddle my own way through for about six months. And I, that was probably when I started finding, um, writing things down was, you know, helpful just to get it to get it out. By, so that it was me that I had my daughter by Christmas time. I, I decided that, you know, nothing had shifted very much and went and got antidepressants. And it was like a, you know, honestly, it was like a life changing. It was a, a, it was a miracle. Um, and they helped really quickly, like within kind of four to six weeks, I noticed a difference and felt as if I was getting back to myself. Um, and the, the poem, you know, so when I had started writing things down, it was poems um, that I was writing because I think I've got just quite an artistic nature anyway. And I kind of think in rhymes or like in rhythm. So that's what I was using. And then um, when I had the antidepressants, I noticed I. I noticed the poetry changing. Um, so then when I looked back, when I was much better, um, and I looked back, because it was really a journey of about two years, actually. Um, and when I looked back on it, it was like, you could see, you could see when it was really, really bleak. Um, and then you could see it changing and being thoughtful about just life and, and what I could change in my life. 
like that rather than just hopeless I don't even know what today this is horrible um to starting to think about you know what I wanted and what I could change and then just to kind of notice nice things and enjoying myself so that was Donna um and Donna speaks here about how hard her pregnancy was um the traumatic birth she experienced and then she talks about the subsequent depression um that she developed um and along with the aid of antidepressants she discovered writing in poetry and how she used this almost like a journal what are some of the other arts you've seen that have helped people to connect with their thoughts and feelings? Uh, I suppose um, I've been involved in using art, you know, art materials generally. That's my um, primary mode. Um, and so obviously all types of art materials can lend themselves to expression of different feelings. So whether it be paint or clay um, or powdery pastels um, and obviously the environment in which that is in. So I've used these things in outdoor environments in schools with children in, in terms of just having fun, that being the focus. Um, and I suppose I could see that children especially and and adults with learning disabilities um, were using them to express very deep down feelings and I could see that they were coming out in the use of the art materials so they do lend themselves very easily to expression and that's I suppose what led me into my kind of interest in art therapy in the end and why I trained in it but along the way I've I've come across lots of other arts like um, music therapy obviously I've worked alongside music therapists um, I worked in a boarding school with adolescents with severe autism and, and complex needs and uh, saw firsthand how music could be so useful in allowing for children to and young people to really express feelings um, and yeah have have and those being a, a real spectrum of feelings from real joy and being in the moment um, and having a connection with whoever the person in the room is with you facilitating that and whatever happens within that connection to to really difficult, you know, more distressing feelings that can also be accessed and and felt and expressed and 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 acknowledged and understood and really heard, um, which is often needed um, if they've had to be repressed or couldn't be heard at the time of, of when they were felt. Yeah, I've, there's also obviously in, in within the arts therapies, there's this psychodrama and there's uh, dance movement therapy, all of which have unique uh, and individual ways in which they can lend themselves to people being able to express different things. I've just actually finished a training course with somebody in stop frame animation as well, which was was uh, yeah it was amazing actually. It was uh, for a group of arts like the regional group of arts psychotherapists and. Um, we were learning um, from a from a great facilitator about how he was using it, working with people who had experienced trauma. He'd worked with people in prisons and people, refugees, all of the hoops they were having to jump through, and what uh, with a lack of language, what what that was bringing up in them, and how actually using the anim, stop frame animation, it it stopped them from being triggered. Their their trauma being triggered and felt something about being able to stand outside of the process and think of the other practical details that were needed helped them just tell a story. Uh, it, it was amazing. I can really understand how Donna could access that and find ways of 
expressing herself in that kind of rhythmic way, that kind of catching hold of maybe adjectives and words that could really kind of capture a feeling and and an, ex, an experience for her without needing to explain it too much or answer questions or think about it in a different way. Just, yeah. Yeah. And I guess just to provide a, a bit of a segue to the next question, I, I, I guess that so many people have a, a kind of stereotype about what art is and the misconception that it's inaccessible or it's highbrow or even people thinking, oh, I'm just not good. I suppose sometimes people think that it can be an overly expensive activity um, that you need a certain skill for. But the reality is that anyone can make art at pretty much any time as well. Have you faced challenges in trying to convey that? And if so, how? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, obviously, we're, we're in a culture where the sort of talking therapies and sort of cognitive behavioural therapy um, is is kind of president and and takes yeah a lot of space in the NHS and uh, the arts therapies are yeah underrepresented I think at times um, but actually they can be really useful for really accessing feelings that maybe can't be verbalized or aren't quite at that stage of being able to be thought about in that way so yeah people faced with a black sheet of paper or a lump of clay can really feel quite frightened by it and it's it takes a lot of work actually um to sometimes get people to a stage where they're able to engage just with the art materials but I think what can really help is allowing people to let go of those preconceptions of like you said what 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 we think of as art and actually strip that away and think well actually I can like you say be anything you know it's a creative act and it, it can be the ripping up of paper the it doesn't have to also be you know art materials used in the conventional way we have to try and allow people and give people permission to 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 cut into things if they're feeling that needed to cut things up you know they might be feeling messy inside and that has to be then in some way you know can be that that they make a mess and that's equally as important as making a an image that might be admired on a wall but I do think that we are kind of brought up in an education system where you know, at, at nursery stage, it can be quite free and open and allow and, and sort of self-directed where children are often allowed to just be free. But very quickly at sort of age of five, we end up, you know, getting kind of compartmentalised and pushed into boxes and, and given themes and told how to do things. And actually at senior school, high school, you know, it, it becomes much narrower. And, and yeah, we feel that there is just one way of doing it, which is often representational. And then if we can't do that, then we don't feel good at it. So that can be very difficult. And we have to work with that as adults and allowing people to own their own creativity, whatever that is, and allowing them space to find that. And play is a really good um, way in. The emphasis isn't often sometimes on the end product. It's on the process. So there might even not be an end product. Sometimes there is, and that end product can be very, very important and cherished um, and need to be kept very safe. Um, and, and that's part of the work, and they come back to it. But actually, sometimes it's just some weeks about making a mess, and, and that's saying a lot. Yes, there's three things there. It's the expressive communication, the discovering your inner child, and also process over product 
and I think I totally agree I think we I have had this conversation a lot and we just often forget that and um yeah I'd love to go back to that that freedom that free flow so I, I want to move on to our our next next testimony and it's um from John who was born in 1947 and grew up in a place called Borg, which is part of Dumfries and Galloway, um, left school at 15 and to work on a farm with his dad for nine years. But he left the area and got married in 1974. He then joined the prison service in Barlini and stayed up until 2009 and retired and worked with the prisons department in Turkey for six months. Um, he then returned from that and became a member of the parole board for Scotland for seven years and fully retired. Finally, became very interested in suicide prevention, mental health as part of his work in prisons and was on the prison services national suicide prevention group as well. So you you talked a wee bit there about when you first came across um is it Theatre Nemo? Theatre Nemo, yes, yes. And you you felt like it wasn't going to be something that was um you know that would would benefit perhaps. Well Can you, um, can you talk yeah. a wee bit about why yes. you you felt that initially? I mean I was I was brought into the prison service in an era where um, it was a very closed environment. I mean, it became more open as the years went on. But there was a lot of people wanted to get access to the prisons, um, not always for the right reasons. And I didn't, I'd never heard of Isabella Theatre anymore. So I wasn't sure if she was one of these kind of crazy leftists that just wanted to get in and, and um, disrupt the place, if you like, you know. Um, so I was, I was, I was suspicious of. I was always suspicious of people wanting to come in and and do something that wasn't how should we say, wasn't evidence based. Mm. I mean. What Theatre Nemo was doing wasn't evidence-based. It was very much, you know, um, experienced, but not 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 based on on evidence. So that was why why I initially rejected the notion of. I thought, what can Taiko Drummond do to help people, or what can you know? But I can I can always remember after. And this is one of these kind of road to Damascus moments, you know what I mean? Um, she came back in and, and we were forced to agree to, you know, she'd come with the money and I couldn't use the money as an excuse to reject her again. And she got a group of prisoners working. She, I mean, there was Hugh and I can't remember the other guy that used to come in. But they came in and they worked with prisoners and they did a play and I, I, I went to that play in the chapel, and I will never, ever forget it. It was, how should I say it? I saw it transforming people. Um, and, you know, we had, we had visitors in to see it as well. And eventually we were getting prisoners' families to come in and see them. And just to see what it did for people's self-esteem, because they were telling a story and they were telling a story that, that do you know what? You would need to be really callous not to not to listen to the story, you know. 
um, about about how life had treated them, how they got where they were. But when that was passed, and and the 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 feeling of well being of having achieved something was was really amazing. You know, just and it was I have to say to you, it was nothing. It was nothing. Um, what you would say you would put on at the the Theatre Royal in Glasgow or whatever. But nonetheless, it was the first time that these people had done anything. So it gave them a great sense of achievement, you know. I mean, it was like when we trained the young offenders to be listeners. They would be, I say young offenders, they were the older young offenders that would be maybe 19, 20, more mature. But we had a presentation evening when we handed over the certificates um, and we invited their parents to come to that evening. And just to see the pride that their kids had done something, you know what I mean, that, that was worthwhile and they were going to be doing something really worthwhile. And it's about this, you know, um, giving, giving people the opportunity to show that they can do something. I mean, it was like when we, when we introduced the listeners came to Greenock, it didn't work properly to start with. It wasn't working. So we arranged um, a conference between the listeners and the staff. And we ran that over a Friday afternoon and a Saturday morning to thrash out the problems. And I remember saying to the then governor and to the, the two ladies who were in from the Samaritans, if I had... If somebody had told me in 1974 or 75 that one day I would be sitting down with staff and prisoners trying to work out how to run a prison, I would have been laughed at. I would have been absolutely laughed at, you know. And it was about us moving moving that culture on. Um, and it was, you know, it's. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not going to suggest that it wasn't without its problems. I mean... Prisoners are prisoners and, and they got up to things sometimes that they shouldn't have got up to and we had to take, take them off. But, you know, I used to meet regularly with the listeners in Berlin. Um, I, had a, I had a listener coordinator, but I used to go and meet with them maybe once a month just to talk through the problems. And, you know, we had got to a stage with the Berlin ones where they were telling us if the other some of the other listeners were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, you know. Um, which I thought was a was a great step forward, you know. So John's a great example of someone who, with high levels of scepticism, um, as he mentions, and he's always wanted to see something used as evidence-based, which is a continual thing, I think, across the board, especially when it comes to things like funding um, and so on. Have you had experience of working with people from troubled backgrounds or those have been in prison? And if so, does your approach differ? Well, not necessarily, I suppose. Um... I can hear John's scepticism, like you say, and, and actually, yes, I come up, come up against uh, people um, needing evidence all the time in different posts that I've been in the past. So there's a lot of work around how do we find the evidence that people need in order to prove that what we know, that, that arts therapists are really effective. And working with trauma and people that have struggled with 
long-term mental health conditions. And so we we have to find creative ways, I suppose, to, to meet that. But um, I have worked with people who have come out of prison and actually I've never worked with anybody who has been unwilling to be in the room. I think that would be a different experience if we were, it were and, and I know I have, have colleagues who work in prisons and schools when perhaps the person in front of them isn't, is feeling quite reluctant to be there. I think that takes um, a certain approach and maybe a lot of work to get to the point where people are engaging. But but generally, I've worked with people um, who are wanting to be there. I I suppose I meet the person where they're at. So it depends what they want and what they need and and what they're bringing. And and occasionally, I have quite a non-directive approach generally. So it's like a dynamic kind of approach where I will step back a little bit and give space to the client and see what they're drawn to and what comes up for them and, and respond as needed. Um, but sometimes that can feel threatening and frightening. And so sometimes people need a bit more guidance and some edges to move within. So it might be that they need theme to work with. And I will try and find that theme from them to work with what, what's in within them rather than just plucking something out of the air and it coming from me. Um, so it might be that we talk first and we get to something and then we work with the art material. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, I guess it's it's case by case, isn't it? It's person by person. It, John talks about a sense of achievement um, and that people get felt from creative activities, and he was he was very passionate about that as well. I think it was like a revelation um, that these people took part in, and shame, guilt, feelings of worthlessness, and more. Some of the things you experience in these circumstances, and subsequently your self esteem is completely lowered. How do you feel that art helps build that back up again? People, you're right, will come through the door um, having been through the system often and we don't have a lot of long-term processes for people to work with. Often when you go see the doctor, you might be offered six sessions counselling or you might get 12 or 16, but very often it's short-term or time-limited interventions, psychological interventions that are offered. So it can be hard to work with trauma, complex trauma, or it can take 16 sessions to get to a place where people feel safe enough to start talking about trauma or uh, distress, deep distress, where they've never been able to share things. It can it can take a long time. So to be able to offer more long-term interventions is really key, I think, for, for some people. And, um, in, and then once that is... In place, some people can start to feel safe and understood, and and they can start to feel that somebody isn't judging them, and that they can talk about fear and distress and um, shame, like you said, and all sorts of guilt that um, is something that they've been holding on to for most of their life. Then, once they can do that, and they and they can start finding ways to express that in different forms, whether it you know be through words or poetry or through movement and um, and art making, then it can it can lift so much pressure, so much deep shame um, that can make living their lives easier. That can mean that they don't feel as burdened and as heavy in daily life. Yeah, they can. I mean, I've had people say that they. They feel like a different person, that they've been able to work through things that they never felt they could. 
and that they start to have a different relationship with themselves, that they realise things weren't their fault um, when they, they felt it was, or they start to understand themselves differently, that things when they were a child, perhaps when they were brought up in certain ways, things that happened to them, they start to understand how that's impacted them as adults and what they're doing, how they're living their lives, the behaviours that they have or the thinking, the ways of thinking that they have, um, that it's attached to maybe neglect or abuse. That they, that they find a way of making sense of something that they didn't understand before that means that they can then let go of, of certain ways of thinking or behaving. Sometimes they've cut off so much of themselves because they were so frightened of feeling that pain, that distress, that that they didn't feel anything then. They were living life in a kind of numbed state. But working with trauma can allow them to start feeling things safely. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's a, a phenomenal thing. I mean, it, when you talk about evidence-based, it's I know that we have to kind of go back when we're assessing things and you have to report back um, in, in terms of, of those things. But it's it, sometimes it's just like trying to convey the sheer joy or, or breakthrough that someone's had just from doing a, an activity like that, which can at times be, be a bit difficult. I want to move on to our, our last testimony and it's Alina, born in 1964 and grew up in Pakistan, moved to the capital city of Islamabad when she was 12 and experienced a lot of political instability within the country around the 70s and 80s and then moved to the UK at 26 years old. Alina enjoyed arts and science when at school and went on to study medicine and through work as multicultural health facilitator at uh, Greater Glasgow Health Board, gradually became more involved in the arts and would look at the sensitive and cultural needs of ethnic minorities and suggested things like arts exhibitions that incorporated the experience and backgrounds of these communities. Do you think that people kind of see the benefits more of art in a in a health setting more now than than in the kind of 90s when you were first working on projects? Yes, um, I, I definitely think so. Um, I think at that time, uh, for, um, I mean, even as a medically trained doctor, I uh, for me, um, I would follow uh, more of the social model of health. And um, during health promotion as well, for me, it was health is like a lot of doctors or health professions follow that um, health is, uh, you know, the state of physical, mental and uh, emotional uh, social well-being. But for me, it was also uh, following one of the definitions from one of the health promotion specialists. Um, it was not just the state of physical, mental, emotional, social well-being, but also enabling a person to fulfill their creative potential. So every one of us has some form of creativity. Now, not necessarily, I'm not talking about necessarily that every one of us becomes like um, a virtuoso, you know, uh, violin play or, or a pianist, but I'm talking about uh, creativity, which allows them to express themselves, their feelings, emotions. It could be anything from dance to singing, uh, to drawing, painting. So to enable that. And I found that as the years have gone on, um, a lot has happened 
in context of Scotland, in Glasgow as well. Um, and the recognition has been made impact of ours, whether it's on the social well-being of people uh, who are living of um, in deprived areas, especially children. And then there's also a lot happening in the NHS. And now when you go into the hospitals, you will see different exhibitions coming from community, from projects like uh, uh, projectability being exhibited in the hospitals. And also um, um, three, nearly three years ago, my mother was actually not well in hospital and it, she was in the elderly um, care unit at uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And in there they had social gathering rooms. So there would be tables and chairs, but they also had uh, once a week an, an artist who would come and do sessions with the patients. So whichever, whoever was interested, uh, they could come and join the session. They would, could do drawing or, you know, anything that, and of course she, and they were, there were no one couple of them who were running the workshop and they would work with them. And uh, and these women were elderly, but they, they were involved. They enjoyed it. And some of them we have to realize are in these units in terms of elderly for more than two, you know, two weeks, at a time. So um, all of that, uh, you know, they look forward to that session. So you, you, uh, there are practical examples now that the importance of art in terms of patients rehabilitation um, is much more recognized now. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that it's been heartening to see that. Of course, there's a lot more which can be done. There's always funding cutbacks with recession and all of that. And COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has again uh, dented all these initiatives because now there, there are so many cutbacks. And uh, uh, of course, then a lot of activities have gone up, gone on Zoom and other such social apps. And same way, there are other activities like South Asians have what is called Mushaira, uh, poetry readings, gatherings. So I've seen world over, uh, you know, poetry reading gatherings have been happening via Zoom. In some ways, this hadn't happened before, but now certainly, you know, um, events which used to be happening live and sometimes they would be streamed via Facebook are now being streamed. So you, uh, uh, you know, globally. And there was last month, um, the first global Urdu Mushaira from India. And again, because of the Zoom facility, I could watch it while it was happening. So uh, I think um, we have, during this COVID, we have learned to use technology in a way which we didn't use before. But I also feel um, people are still very isolated and that isolation, even with the technology, it, it doesn't take away that aspect. Uh, people still want to meet and, uh, you know, in person in terms of going to these events. Now, Alina managed to combine both her loves of arts and medicine, but she also had the means to introduce and work with the, that within communities of ethnic minorities. Um, and language and communication is a huge barrier at times when it comes to mental health. How have you seen arts break down that barrier? Well, I suppose we're lucky to have another medium. So it's not just language and um, verbal kind of communication. We have all a whole host of other uh, mediums at our disposal in which, uh, you know, people can express and communicate. So that actually language sometimes isn't needed um, as much. 
or, or at all. There's so much that can be said through interacting with art materials that that one can, and, and it's universal, isn't it, art materials? So in, no matter what language people are speaking um, and, and culture they've been brought up in, actually they can, they can find a way to express something, you know, whether it be, you know, using paints and paper or clay from the earth or a stick and uh, natural found materials. There's, there's so many ways in which we can um, express and explore ourselves and communicate that to, to somebody else um, beyond language. So I think um, we're, we're really lucky that we can have that connection with people, that we can interact with them. It's very relational. So, you know, when somebody's doing something and they look at us, they, uh, we can show them in that look and in, and, and, and in that way of using the art materials that that we're, we understand what's being said and we don't need language to, to make that connection with somebody. Yeah, no, definitely. It's such a, a beautifully rich um, cultural community that we have in, in many areas. Mm. Um, and I suppose um, accessibility as well. Some people, um, it's, you know, vision mm. impaired, hearing, uh, hearing um, mm. impaired. There, there's so many um, different aspects. Neurodiversity, um, which I think people um, often forget as well. And I suppose when you add those layers on top of your, if you do experience things like trauma, you're having problems with mental health, then it's enough to battle through that instead of actually adding that extra layer in terms of communication as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we have to talk about the pandemic. It's something that is, it's changed things immeasurably. And she mentions the pandemic and how we've used technology more effectively in some cases. I, I do understand on the flip side, we've talked about sensory there and the importance of having those tangible things and, and being in person with someone and touching things and making things. But how have you perhaps used technology um, and do you see the difference between using technology and being in person with individuals and groups? Yeah, I mean, like you, like everybody, we all had to go online um, in 2020 and um, we we were able to do that. It took a little bit of time, but we were able to do off of that um, and, and find our way um, with it. It didn't feel immediately obvious because we're using, like you say, such kind of um, sensory materials and um, but we definitely went online with all our one, uh, individual clients and groups and found a way of working and learnt a lot. So, um, yeah, learning how to create healthy boundaries when, you know, we were usually in control of those boundaries in the therapy room. Actually, then having to hand that control over to clients and, and nurture those kind of boundaries with them so that they could create a private space for themselves within their own home that they felt was um, safe enough. And, and that was quite hard in some in some cases. Yeah, we would find ways of sharing artwork. So when people had made artwork, they would be taking photos and sending them through email, and then we would be sharing the screen and having multiple images upon the screen in groups and just really quickly learning how to be able to find a connection with the art making and the artwork and be able to see it well enough Sometimes I worked on the telephone because people were triggered by the screen if it had been part of their trauma. So that was another 
way of working with art materials uh, in an art therapy context that I hadn't had to before. Um, so we were finding ways and means of doing it. And it might be that they would send me an image as well and I would have it on the screen while we were on the telephone. And they would just have to work with what we what was what was there and meet meet that need. It does feel to me personally that it's hard to replicate what you have in the room in person with people. You do your best and you manage um, to get a pretty good version. But I don't think anything compares to being physically present when you're actually witnessing the art making in person. You can hear every sound and you can see things um, in a way that the screen kind of can can reduce the impact and, and block off some of those experiences. We're not actually in a whole person kind of whole body experience uh, relationship and I think that's really important so I've been really grateful to get back to in-person work recently where we're having those full body experiences where we can be in in the presence of another. Yeah I want to ask one more question and it's a personal one for you as a person what impact does art have on your well-being? I suppose it's a big part of me you know it feels like it's a part of me a really big part of me from childhood and I don't think I would be the same person without it so I do write and make art I like painting it's a part of me that I feel um when I'm making art I can I can get in touch with things that is difficult to get in touch with in other ways so I might not be able to be able to verbalize something but I can feel something when I'm kind of painting um and it's like a relationship with myself I suppose it's like a conversation I'm having through the, the act of of being involved in the art medium and, and I like paint that can discover things I can discover things in that process that I probably wouldn't get to in other ways playing again like I said earlier just playing it feels essential it feels it feels valuable I cherish it um and feels uh, yeah a very precious part of myself. Donna's extremely honest testimony highlights one of the many traumas that can subsequently impact mental health significantly. But her use of medication combined with the arts, in this case poetry and journaling, will no doubt give people listening some means to consider when it comes to their own experiences. The growth she could see when she looked back at her writing in that self-reflection was a tool in itself. As Andrea says, this covers countless areas from physical sensory arts such as paint, clay, right through to animation. And also seeing these things firsthand and the impact that they can have on mental health by being used to express inner feelings can create remarkable shifts. That reminder of seeing things firsthand is important also when it comes to John's recount and how this removed his scepticism. This is a common feeling when it comes to the arts and at no fault of an individual. It can be their social circles, education, family setting, or it can be even a demand to see more evidence-based results as John touches on. So it's all the more important for skeptics like John to have their stories heard to help shift opinion as it may encourage more investment. Alina's work with communities and the discussions around language barriers is something that in a predominantly English-speaking country we can forget, but that can extend to BSL interpretation and more. It's not just the conventional spoken language, but as Andrea says, we are lucky to have the arts as another medium at our disposal. 
Expression and communication can be done through the arts without even the need of language and is entirely universal by creating a vibrant space for social connection. This makes a powerful contribution to mental health without perhaps even the need for words. This podcast has been presented, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai, for the Mental Health Foundation, with music by Lucy Parnell. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund.